Amen and amen. What a morning of worship already to hear to hear the church sing it's not I it's him it's always been him If you would turn in your bibles to Micah chapter 1 verse 1 Micah chapter 1 verse 1 last week we completed Jonah, as we continued on through our sermon series entitled Repentance for Revival. The idea that the message of the prophets, and I would even say the message of Scripture is in part a message of repentance and of grace. Repentance in the sense that the Bible tells us that if we continue to walk the wrong way, if we continue to follow our own desires, continue to follow what the world says is important, that there is destruction at the end of that path. But if we will turn the message of hope and of repentance, if we will turn and follow Jesus Christ and obey him, that we will find not destruction, but that we will find blessing. That we will find salvation. That we will find purpose and fulfillment and hope. The message of Micah is similar. Micah stands before the people of Israel and proclaims this message of repentance and hope as well. And we're going to dig into that message over the next several weeks. Micah being the longest of the books that we're going to look at. Uh, in this particular sermon series, he's seven, seven chapters long. We're going to look at that. But this morning, we're going to look specifically at Micah chapter 1, verse 1, and, and just spend a moment in time, of time to ask the question, how is, it, how is it that the prophet speaks this word? How is it that there is power in the message? How is it that we today can continue to be God's ambassadors with the same message. And so if you would, would you please help me to honor the reading of God's word by standing together as we read Micah chapter 1, verse 1. The word of the Lord that came to Micah of Morasheth in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, which he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. Let me pray. Father, we come before you this morning and we are thankful. Oh, we have much to be thankful for as we remember the blessings that you have bestowed upon us, whether it be in our family, whether it be in our church, whether it be in the food on our tables, the roof over our head, whether it be in this country that we live in, or most importantly, the salvation that you have granted us, that you desire to know us and to have a relationship with us, to call us into life and life eternal. And that now you have set us on a course. Father, I pray that as we Listen to your word this morning that we would understand the power that you desire to give. That we may accomplish more than we could ever dream of. We pray this in the beautiful name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. 
Micah 1.1 is not a long verse by any stretch of the imagination, nor does it give us any great depth of theological information. And yet there are some simple things that we find in this first verse that inform us not only about the person of Micah and his ministry, but also help us to see a bigger picture of what is going on, not only in the prophets, but in our lives as well. And so this morning, my desire, my hope, my prayer is that that we go through Micah 1.1, as we learn a little bit more about the person of Micah and his ministry and how that is accomplished, that we would remember that God desires to do the same thing through us. It may not be the exact same ministry, it may not be the exact same mode or method, but it is certainly the same purpose and by the same power that we accomplish what God has given us to do. As we look at Micah chapter 1, the first thing that we learn about Micah is that he is from Morasheth. Now, Morasheth was a small town located just to the south, kind of southwest of Jerusalem. It was in a rural area. Uh, It wasn't known for its big population. There was nothing to draw anyone there. It was just kind of a dot on the map, so to speak, that people would go, oh yeah, I kind of know that place. But he didn't grow up in Jerusalem. He didn't grow up in the capital of Israel, Samaria. He didn't grow up in any of those places. He was like most of us who grew up in this community or in a surrounding one, who grew up in a rural area with nothing special to put by the place that we were born or raised other than for it to be our home. He was a small town guy. And it must have been quite the thing when God spoke to Micah and said, I want you to proclaim my message to these people. For him to call out to Micah and say, don't just stay here. I'm I'm sending you to Jerusalem. I'm going to send you to Samaria. I'm going to send you to the big city. And I can remember, the, I remember when I, I graduated from college, I went to Hannibal LaGrange, so I kind of stayed close to home, and I can remember that first time when I realized that I was going to go to the University of Memphis, that I was going to move to that city and, and continue my education there. There were all kinds of butterflies. It was like, I've never lived in anywhere close to that big, and I was extremely nervous about it. And then I found the barbecue, and things got better. But Micah must have been extremely nervous. This is a small town kid. Not only that, but he was probably from a farming background. The name Morasheth ties to wine presses. More than likely, this area was a place where grapes were grown. And certainly, they would have had livestock. Most scholars agree that that Micah's background, based on some of his writings, based on what little we know about him, where he's from, what we know from tradition about him, based on, on just several different things, most scholars agree Micah was from a farming background. Whether he was a wealthy farmer or whether he was a farmhand is debated, but that was his background. He was certainly not trained to be a priest, or to be a communicator for God. It was, he had no formal 
uh, religious education to speak of. It wasn't like he had gone to seminary and learned how to, to properly divide the scriptures and, and how to preach a sermon or how to minister to people. He had none of that. God simply came to this small town kid with, with an agricultural background and said, I want you. I want you to speak for me. I want you to work for me. Never mind, like I said, that he had no training in that. God wasn't worried about his training. He wasn't worried about what education Micah did or did not have. He had created Micah and brought Micah to this point in his life with all the experiences that were tied to that for a purpose. Not only that, but it's interesting that Micah wasn't even the most well-known prophet of his day. We get a sense of when his ministry occurs based on the three kings that are listed in Micah 1.1. Those three kings give us a, a time stamp, so to speak, of when all of these things occurred uh, for Micah and, and the message that he was speaking into people's lives. And if we take that time stamp and we look at the rest of Scripture, we find that Micah was a contemporary of Isaiah if you flip back some in your Bible, you're going to find the book of Isaiah. Isaiah is one of the largest books in all of Scripture. Most of his messages are recorded. His deeds are there. He's recorded in the history part of the Bible in, in First and Second Kings. And, and we see him active. He was the superstar, so to speak. He was the, he was the to put it in our context, he was the, the pastor of the megachurch, Okay. Isaiah was the guy. Micah was kind of, kind of in the background, so to speak. And that's most of his ministry. And yet, despite being from a small town, being from a farming background, not having any formal religious education, certainly, not even being the most well-known prophet of his time, Micah, Micah continued to serve well. James 5.17 says that all of the prophets we could look at in this light. James 5, starting in verse 17, says, Elijah, the great prophet, was a man with a nature like ours. And he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months it did rain. Then he prayed again and, gave he and heaven gave rain and earth bore its fruits. You see, it's not just Micah that we could say this about. It's really all of the prophets even, even the great prophets of Moses and, and the, the great saints of Abraham and the disciples, Peter and Paul and, and others that we look at and we put on pedestals, we must remind ourselves on a consistent basis that when we look at those individuals, that they're just like us. There wasn't anything uniquely special about them. They all had different hometowns. They all had different occupations, different levels of education, different skill sets, different desires, and different passions. Just like we do as individuals sitting in this church this morning. And yet, again, we see Micah serve faithfully. He was a faithful prophet. He was a faithful prophet. His ministry spanned for some 25 to 30 years. Again, we get this time stamp from the, pro, the kings, sorry, the kings that are listed in 1-1. We know that he proclaimed the message of God for 25 to 30 years. And it was not a popular message. 
The first 20 years of Micah's ministry, and especially the middle section when he was under Ahaz, his message was not, they did not want to hear it. Ahaz, the king, was an evil king. He did everything opposite of the way that God wanted him to do. He, he worshipped other gods, and he made sacrifices, and he did things that, that we won't even speak of this morning. He was evil. He closed down the temple in Jerusalem so that no one could worship there. That was the that was the atmosphere that Micah did a good chunk of his ministry in to speak to those people that would follow Ahaz and to Ahaz himself and say, the, the direction that you are going leads to nowhere good. Repent. Stop going that way. Start going the other way. There's no doubt that that message was met with ridicule, that it was met with at times, even violence. But Micah continued to minister. Part of the reason that his message was so disliked was that it was a message of justice. Micah's message of repentance that we've talked about, the evil that he spoke of most was the evil of those individuals who were powerful, who were High, high and lifted up in society, who had a great deal of wealth, that, that they were taking advantage of those in society who they saw as below them. We're going to get into this more next week, but Micah spoke about how the rich of the society, they were stealing from the poor. They were, they were taking advantage of them. They were causing them to, to stay poor. And in some cases, they were causing them to even go farther into poverty. He spoke of how women and children were treated in society, how foreigners were treated in society. And he said, this is wrong. And it was an unpopular message that got him in a great deal of trouble. And yet, Micah continued to be faithful. He continued to preach the message that God had given him. Thanks be to God that he chose to show Micah the fruit of his labor. Micah ends up seeing the revival under Hezekiah. A new king of Judah comes on, on the scene. And when that happens, Micah, continuing his ministry, gets to see God do something incredible. If you'll turn back with me to Jeremiah, just a few pages over to the left. Micah, or sorry, Jeremiah 26. Jeremiah is preaching a similar message to that of Micah. He's telling the people of Judah, the people of Jerusalem specifically, if you continue to go this direction, if you continue to go this direction, you're going to find destruction. Jerusalem's going to be torn down. It's not going to end well. And the people of of Jerusalem at the time of Jeremiah hear that message and they decide, we don't like this guy, we're going to get rid of him. And so we find in, the, in Jeremiah 26, verse 16, this re recorded, it says, Then the officials and all the people said to the priest and the prophets, This man does not deserve the sentence of death, for he has spoken to us in the name of the Lord our God. And certain of the elders of the land arose and spoke to all of the assembled people, saying, Micah of Morasheth, 
Moresheth, prophesied in the days of Hezekiah, king of Judah, and said to all the people of Judah, thus says the Lord of hosts, Zion shall be plowed as a field, Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins, and the, mountains, the mountain of the house of, wood, of a wooded height. Did Hezekiah, king of Judah, and all Judah put him to death? The answer being no. Did Hezekiah not fear the Lord and entreat the favor of the Lord? And did not the Lord relent of the disaster that he had pronounced against them? But what we are about to do bring, but we are about to bring great disaster upon ourselves. We see here in the in the in the time of Jeremiah a recounting by the elders of a time in the not so recent past when Micah preached faithfully and God used the obedience of Micah to change the heart of the king and to change the direction of a nation. And Micah got to see, Micah got to see revival born out of repentance. It must have been an incredible thing towards the end of his ministry to see this miraculous change happen around him and to see the, the fruit of all the, the work that, that the Lord had given him. Even more than that, it's incredible to see here now. He, he could have never imagined, I'm sure as a small boy growing up in a rural community, he would have never imagined that he would have had the ear of the king, that his message would have brought repentance to the people of the nation, much less that several decades later that his work and his ministry and the fruit of that ministry would have saved Jeremiah's life. That people would see Jeremiah's message and go, hey, we've seen this play out before. It's quite an incredible thing when you think about it. This small town boy preaching to kings and nations and seeing God do some incredible things. And yet that's the same thing that God calls us to do. Not maybe to preach to kings, not maybe to, to see nations come to repentance through something that God does through us, but certainly God has sent us on a mission to proclaim the gospel, to proclaim the hope of salvation and heaven for those that are headed the wrong direction. Jesus tells us, if you follow me, you will produce fruit. In other words, he's saying you will make other disciples. Now, he, he gives a caveat to that. He says some of you will have tenfold. Some will be a hundred. And we think, well, our ministry is not very big. I haven't impacted that many people. But let me ask you a question. If I had a police officer or a firefighter here standing with me on stage, and I said, this man standing here with me, he saved 10 people's lives. We would stand in ovation. We would be so thrilled. What if I reduced it? What if I said, this man standing here saved five people's lives? We would want him to write a book. We would make a movie over him. What if, what if I said, this man standing here saved one person's life? We would rejoice. We would throw a parade because of what he had done for one person. Oh, friend, the measure of what God does in your ministry is not a number. It is a life 
saved. Maybe God leads you to one person and that person receives Jesus Christ in repentance. We should be throwing parades. Maybe he calls you to five or 10 or 50. Or maybe he gives you the ministry of Micah and you go far beyond anything you could have ever imagined. But the question to all of this is how? How is that possible? How do we even save one? How was Micah able to to preach to kings and to nations for 25 years, often in times of great hostility towards that message and towards himself? How was he able to remain faithful until that moment when he saw the revival? And the answer simply is the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit. We sang this song earlier, but we have to remember that when we are called into the ministry of Jesus Christ, when we are given a purpose, when we are given life, that it is not done on our own by our own means, that it's not accomplished by our own strength or our own wit, but it is not, it is not I, but it is Christ. And it is his spirit with us. Micah himself speaks to this in verse 3, 8. In chapter 3, verse 8. He says, but as for me, I am filled with power, with the spirit of the Lord. Micah himself says, it's not through my own abilities that I am able to speak these words. It's not through my own wit or my own wisdom that I am able to speak to kings and to nations. It is by the Spirit and the Spirit alone. Peter, the great disciple, speaks to this as well. He says in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 20, knowing first knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. This work, this message, these gifts, these talents, they are from the Lord, and we only accomplish them through Him. John 14, Jesus is speaking to the disciples. It is the night before of his arrest, before the crucifixion, and he is comforting them. He is reminding of, the, of them of certain things. And we find that passage that Norm gave us just a moment ago. It says in 14 verse 15, or sorry, verse 16. No, 15, I was right. If you love me, You will keep my commandments and I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. Skipping over to verse 25. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Going over to chapter 16, he continues. He says, I still, in chapter 16, verse 12, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. 
When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. You see, God does not leave us, Jesus does not leave us, as he says in 14, as orphans. But he leaves us with something greater. He leaves us with the Holy Spirit who lives with us. May we remember as we go through this life, whether it be through the great joys of triumph or the great grief of loss, that we are not alone. Though all others would abandon us, though all others would mock us, Jesus Christ is with us. The Holy Spirit is with us. And we find great comfort and great peace in that. Let's remember that the Holy Spirit teaches and reminds us. Jesus tells them, I, have, I haven't finished all of your training yet, but I am sending you one who will explain everything. And the Spirit guides us as we read through the Word, and he unfolds the, the, he unfolds the Pentateuch, he unfolds the history, he unfolds the, the Psalms and the prophets and the New Testament. He unfolds them in our minds and our hearts that we may not only gain wisdom, but that we may gain application. How do we use this book to live? It's the Holy Spirit that does that. It's the Holy Spirit that reminds us of those words. Jesus says, do not fear when they drag you before kings and governors, but, and do not worry about what you will say, for I will give you the words. Maybe you're like me and you've sat with a friend who is struggling, maybe with a marriage, maybe with an illness or a sickness to another, maybe with a child, and you simply do not have the words. But he whispers, remember this. Remember to tell them that I am with them. Remember to tell them that there is mercy and grace. And he reminds us of his word that we may encourage, that we may bring healing, not through our own power, but through his, that we may hold accountable, that we may that we may help cut away sin when it's needed, that we may lift up and pray for. He teaches and reminds us he leads. He leads. We don't set our own course, but rather when we declare that Jesus Christ is our Lord and our Savior, we are saying, you go first, I will follow. I will follow. Do we wake up in the morning and put our feet on the ground and ask, Lord, where would you have me to go today? Who would you have me to see today? Do we ask him to make it evident to us that this occasion, when we rub shoulders with a certain individual, that it was not merely happen chance, but that it was a divine appointment do we allow him to lead in the small things and in the big? And do we remember that he empowers us? Oh, church, like, <laughs> this is to me as much as it is to anyone. But do we remember that the ministry of the gospel is not accomplished by our own wisdom and our own wit and our own strength and our own activity, but that it is accomplished by him. Brother and sister, do you find yourself 
in a place and time when ministry is maybe difficult or it's frustrating, that you keep running up against the wall, that you feel like you just can't do it anymore, that you're trying to take on all of it by yourself and you're like, what is going on? Sometimes that is a really good time to stop and say, am I trying to do this or is he? We get in a really bad habit sometimes as believers of saying, I want to do this. Lord, bless that. Rather than saying, Lord, what do you want to do and how can I join you? Sometimes in those moments of frustration, sometimes that's the enemy. Sometimes it's, it's just life. But sometimes it's us needing to take a step back and say, am I trying to do this in my own power? Am I trying to save the world on my own? Or am I relying on him? Because he's the one that changes the hearts of kings. He's the one that changes the direction of nations. He's the one that brings the heart, the heart of repentance and salvation to the lost. He's the one that died on the cross and rose again, not me. Am I to be faithful? Yes. Am I to be obedient? Yes. Am I speak the, the gospel with truth and hope? Absolutely. Am I to serve my neighbor as I would serve myself? Of course. But I do it with the knowledge that he goes before, that he accomplishes those things. As we come to a conclusion, we think and we ponder about how Micah was able to accomplish so much, that how Micah, God used this, this individual who others would have looked at and shrugged, and used him to do incredible things, as we're reminded this morning that God God gives the same Holy Spirit to you and I that he did to Micah and to the other prophets. Let us remember that God wants to use us, that he wants to use you, that he has given you a purpose. Now, in some ways, all of us have the same purpose. We're all here that we may make much of God, that we may glorify his name, that we may make him known, that we, others may hear of who he is and the grace that he offers. Certainly, all of us have that purpose in common, but he has given us different skills and different passions, different talents and different gifts to see that occur. For some of you, it may be the love on children to help them to understand the truths of God's word. For some of you, it may be to teach adults. For others of you, it may be to serve in a kitchen during a ministry. For others, it may be to clean. For others, it may be to build or to care for, for physical properties that, that we have or that others have. For others, it may be cards and words of encouragement and prayer. God has God has knitted together a wonderful thing called the church so that our gifts and talents may be magnified through him. You have a purpose and you have a place. It is no accident that you are here this morning. It is no accident that you were born in this region or that God has brought you here over time. He has placed you in Vandalia. Not Vandalia, Ohio, not Vandalia, Illinois, Vandalia, Missouri, here and now, in 2023, because he wants to use you, because there is a person that you can reach, that he wants to use you to save, 
to love on, to understand. Because there is a church here that needs you. Every single one of you. We can't do this well without our whole body. He has given you a purpose. He has given you a place. And he has given you the power. Just as he filled Micah with the power to speak, so he will fill you to accomplish the purpose that he has given you. I don't know how many times since I was a little kid, I've heard church people say, well, I'm going to do this, but I'm not good at that. I'm going to do this because I feel the Lord taking me this direction, but that's not me. And then lo and behold, they get in there and God does cool things. And they're like, I would have never imagined this. He gives us the power to accomplish the purpose that he's given us. Maybe you're sitting here this morning and God's been saying, you need to get involved in this. You need to do this. You need to, you need to speak to this person. You need to go talk to that individual, that coworker, that, uh, that vendor, that, uh, that client. You need to go talk to this family member. You need to go talk to this church member. You need to go serve in children's ministry or you need to go help with youth ministry or you need to, you need to just be a body that, that's there that serves. And you're like, I can't do that. That's the whole point you can't. He can. As the worship team comes back up and we have a time of response, we believe that when God speaks in his word, that he speaks to us. And just as in a normal conversation, it's polite to speak back, so too we have a responsibility to respond. Maybe you're here and, and you're a believer. You have a relationship with Christ, but you've been trying to live the Christian life. You've trying to be, been trying to serve on your own. You've ignored the Spirit. You say, I don't need that. I can do this. You've ignored His calling. You've ignored His leading. And this morning, He has been pounding on your heart and saying, let me in. <laughs> let me work. Let me show you things. Will you do that this morning? Maybe you're here this morning, you've never had a relationship with him. This morning, will you surrender to him and say, I, I want to follow you. I want purpose. I want a place where I belong. I want, I need that. This morning, will you, will you come to God and just say, forgive me for going this direction. I want to follow you. And then will you come find us? Come find somebody so that we can help you to know what the next step is. We're not designed to do this life alone. We're designed to do it in community. Let me pray. Father, we come before you this morning. We thank you for your grace and your, for your mercy. We thank you that you find us right where we're at, no matter, no matter what stage of life, no matter the, the location, Lord, that you find us and that you desire to speak to us, that you desire to use us, that we would find purpose and fulfillment in the kingdom and in you. Father, I pray that, that you would help us to rely more on the Spirit, that we would, we would not get lazy, that we wouldn't stop working, but Father, that we would jump in and go, Lord, what would you have me to do? How would you use me here and now? Father, that you would help us to see you do miraculous things just as we see 
the revival in, under Hezekiah and the change in that nation. Father, we pray. We pray, start with us. We ask these in the beautiful name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Chapter 1, as we continue with our sermon series entitled, Repentance for Revival. I wrote this in the newsletter this last month, but my guess is, is that if I were to go up and down the aisles or to hand out a anonymous survey even and say, do you desire revival? Do you desire to see it in your own life? Do you desire to see it in the life of this church? Do you desire awakening? Do you desire to see lost people's eyes opened, as we saw illustrated this morning, and for them to come to Christ and know the hope of, of heaven and the resurrection? Do you desire those things? My guess is, is that the vast majority of us would say, absolutely. Of course we do. Yeah, we want to see revival. We want to see an awakening. We want those things. But if we were to go back, if I were to go back and ask the question right below that, are you willing to be broken? My guess is, the answer to that question would cause pause. The answer to that question would make us hesitate before we put down an answer. And yet what we see throughout Scripture and throughout history beyond that is that before revival comes, the majority of the time there has to be brokenness. There is a realization before revival in God's people and in the individual's heart that their sin has gotten in the way and that they have replaced Jesus Christ on the throne of their heart with something else, that their passions, that their desires, that their actions, that their words do not, do not reflect Christ as a Savior, and Christ as the ultimate treasure, that they have veered off path. And God reminds them, reminds us of the depth and the breadth of our sin and what it does, and it breaks us. And we grieve, and we repent. And that is through that action that we see revival. And so when we talk about repentance for revival in this sermon series, it's a thing that we don't talk about lightly. It's a thing that we can't come to flippantly and hope for the best. It's a thing that is weighty and heavy. It's a thing that requires introspection of the heart and even spiritual surgery. And yet it is for our good. That brokenness is for our good. And the message of repentance is 
life-giving, though it may seem hard in the moment to say you're going the wrong way, you're going to get yourself hurt, may seem harsh in the moment, but it brings life. Micah stands before the people of Israel and Judah and declares, stop going this way. This morning, would you stand with me as we honor the reading of God's Word? We're going to read from Micah 1, verse 1, through Micah 2, verse 7. Your slides will only go through 2, verse 3, but follow along with me if you would. The word of the Lord that came to Micah of Moresheth in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, which he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. Hear you people, peoples, all of you. Pay attention, O earth, and all that is in it. And let the Lord God be a witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. For behold, the Lord is coming out of his place and will come down and tread upon the high places of the earth. And the mountains will melt under him and the valleys will split open like wax before the fire, like waters poured down a steep place. All this is for the transgression of Jacob and for the sins of the house of Israel. What is the transgression of Jacob? Is it not Samaria? And what is the high place of Judah? Is it not Jerusalem? Therefore, I will make Samaria a heap in the open country, a place for planting vineyards, and I will pour down her stones into the valley and uncover her foundations. All her carved images shall be beaten to pieces. All her wages shall be burned with fire, and all her idols I will lay waste. For the, from the fee of a prostitute she gathered them, and to the fee of a prostitute shall they return. For this I will lament and wail. I will go stripped and naked. I will make lamentation like the jackals and mourning like the ostriches. For her wound is uncurable and it has come to Judah. It has reached to the gate of my people to Jerusalem. Tell it not in Gath. Weep not at all. In Bethlehem, roll yourselves in the dust. Pass on your way, inhabitants of Saphir, in nakedness and shame. The inhabitants of Zanan do not come out. The lamentation of Beth Ezel shall take away from you its standing place. For the inhabitants of Maroth wait anxiously for good, because disaster has come down from the Lord to the gate of Jerusalem. Harness the steeds to the chariots, inhabitants of Lachish. And it was, with, it was the beginning of sin to the daughter of Zion, for in you were found the transgressions of Israel. Therefore, you shall give parting gifts to Morsheth, Goth, the houses of Akzib shall be a deceitful thing to the kings of Israel. I will again bring a conqueror to you, inhabitants of Merashah. The glory of Israel shall come to Adalam. Make yourselves bald and cut off your hair. For the children of your delight, make yourselves as bald as the eagle, for they shall go from you into exile. Woe to those who devise wickedness and work evil on their beds. When the morning dawns, they perform it, because it is in the power of their hand. 
They covet fields and seize them and houses and take them away. They oppress a man and his house, a man and his inheritance. Therefore, thus says the Lord, behold, against this family, I am devising disaster from which you cannot remove your necks. And you shall not walk haughtily, for it will be, be a time of disaster. In that day, they shall take up a taunt song against you and mourn, moan bitterly and say, we are utterly ruined. He changes the portion of my people, how he removes it from me to an apostate he allots our fields. Therefore, you will have none to cast the line by lot in the assembly of the Lord. Do not preach, thus they preach. One shall not preach of such things. Disgrace will not overtake us. Should this be said, O house of Jacob, has the Lord grown impatient? Are these his deeds? Do not my words do good to him who walks uprightly? Let's pray. Father, we come before you. And Father, you are a God of love. And you are a God of grace and mercy. And we make rightly much of that. But Father, sometimes, sometimes I forget the destruction that my sin brings. I forget the evil that has been brought into the world. I forget how my sin grieves your spirit. And I forget the cost that was given to forgive it. I forget what lies in front of those who continue to reject you. Father, forgive me. Father, forgive me. Father, may your word this morning, may it speak to our hearts. May it change us. We pray this in your name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Micah has this ministry that he is called to where he speaks not just to, to Judah, his homeland, but he speaks to all of Israel, the two king, kingdoms separated. And his words are hard. Can you imagine speaking to a group of people in a time of relative prosperity and relative safety, and saying to them, if you do not stop, if you do not stop, he is coming. If you do not stop, all of this is going away. It's no wonder that it was an unpopular message. It's no wonder that it was it was a message that was largely ignored. And yet is a message to us. The Lord is coming. The Lord is coming. And this message that the Lord is coming to, for a large part, as we look through this, is not something that is to be looked forward to, at least by the rebels of God. 
Those that would look at God and say, I can do better. Those that would look at God and say, I don't need your guidance. I don't need your wisdom. I don't need to obey your law. I can do it on my own. Before we get too far in this, though, I want to to just show you something quickly. Because it's easy for us when we come to Micah or we come to really any of the Old Testament prophets, it's easy for us to, to look at these words and look at this message and say, this was for another time. This was for another people. This doesn't apply to us. Turn with me very quickly to Revelation. Go all the way to the back of the book and then come forward just a little bit. Revelation chapter 19. For those of you that are students of Revelation, chapter 19 is most certainly a well-known passage. In chapter 11, we see something important. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, or crowns. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and, by, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. The armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. We read that passage and we often stop there. And we're excited by it to a certain extent. But let's read on. Verse 17. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead. Come, gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army and the beast was captured and its false prophet in it who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshiped its image these two were thrown alive in the lake of fire that burns with sulfur and the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse and all the birds were gorged with their flesh The word of the Lord speaks to us and it announces that the Lord is coming. Both Micah proclaims this in an immediate sense of what was going to happen to Jerusalem and Samaria in the, in the short time ahead. But the word of the Lord also proclaims that there is coming a time when the Lord will come, not as a baby in a manger surrounded by animals and lowly in presence, but that he is coming in glory as King of kings and Lord of lords. And he comes to met out the justice of God. And on that day, there is not one who will stand before the glory of God and his judgment throne and say, 
but I didn't know. But I didn't know. Romans chapter 1 verse 18 says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darker. And claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up to the lust of their heart, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creator rather or the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever amen there is no excuse when the lord comes in all of his glory and all of his justice and all of his holiness there will be no one that can stand and declare their innocence nor ignorance Micah declares the word. He declares not only is the Lord coming and not only is it announced, but it is earned. We're going to go into this more a little bit later. But in Joshua chapter 24, verse 20, Joshua is standing before the people of Israel who at this time have just entered into the promised land. And he is calling them that famous verse, choose this day whom you will serve. He is calling them to make a commitment. And the the people of Israel stand before Joshua, and they declare as a people, we want to follow God. We're going to follow him. We're going to follow the one who has blessed us. We're going to follow the one that took us out of Egypt and put us in the promised land. We are his. And Joshua's response, rather than being one of affirmation, is actually a word of warning. Because he knows this people. He knows their hearts. And so he says, If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then he will turn and do you harm and consume you after having done you good. What Israel, what Micah is speaking of, this destruction, the taking away of the land, the tearing down of the cities, the exile that he speaks of, make no mistake, it is is earned. We're going to get into this more in just a moment as the second part of the the message that Micah speaks, but it's earned. It's also just. It fits the crime. God has gone to great lengths. He's gone to incredible measures to show his love and his grace towards individuals, towards humanity. He created everything you see. And for anyone to sit there and to reject that and to turn their back and to break the law of God, it is a serious offense. We've used this example in the past, but if you were to go to a convenience store and and steal a a pack of M&Ms, 
our justice system, our, our sense of fairness says, well, then that's maybe a couple of days in jail or a fine or something along those lines. But if you're to harm yourself with a substance or in another way, then, then the, the outcome ratchets up a little bit, right? The consequence. And so there may be months in jail or, or years even. But if you were to instead harm someone else, whether it be through assault or even murder, if you're to harm someone else, then at that point, the justice system steps in and it says, okay, because you have, you have gone against another human being, you have impacted or ended their life, the consequence is most severe. Most severe. Even if we look at our nation, you look at the documents that founded us, if you were to go against the nation, to put the nation at harm, what is the result of treason but death? So then, when we look at, at grieving, at wounding a holy God who is eternal, then it makes sense that the outcome, that the consequence is eternal as well. And that it is heavy. That it is heavy. Not only that, but when we, especially as believers, we who say we're Christians, when we say that we are following him and we choose to sin and we lead others astray, Jesus says, beware of that. Beware of that. Because you impact not just their physical life, but you are impacting their eternity. When God comes, he comes in justice. There is, there is no mistake on his part. There is no, no pardon in the sense of him look, taking and looking a blind eye, though certainly we understand we're pardoned through the blood of Jesus Christ. All of your deeds are recorded and the justice that he mets out is perfect and it is also catastrophic. His coming for the one that looks at God and says, I don't need you. I don't want you. I don't love you. I'm not going to obey you. I'm not going to follow you. I'm going to do this life my way. Whatever pleases me. The outcome is catastrophic. The word that I had there originally was horrific. He says that he comes and the mountains melt he says that the carved images are broken into pieces, that the walls are tumbled over and the foundations are exposed. He says that their land is stripped away from them in chapter 2, that there will no longer be one who can cast the line by lot. In other words, what he's talking about there is that land that had been promised to them, that land that had been their safe haven, that land that had been their birthright since the time of, of Joshua and the patriarchs, that he says that land is gone. What you trusted in, what you thought was safe, it's gone, it's done. No longer will you have an inheritance. No longer will you have a home. Maybe, maybe the most chilling of these is 16. 
He says, make yourselves bald and cut off your hair for the children of your delight. Make yourselves bald as the eagle for they shall go from you into exile. The coming of the Lord for those that reject him is catastrophic and it is complete. Your safety is gone. Your home is gone. Your peace is gone. Your family is gone. No wonder, no wonder God hates sin. That it, the Bible tells us that he cannot look, he cannot stand to look upon it because of what evil produces and the justice that it calls for. This is no light thing. And yet, as we've said, it is an earned thing. His coming, his justice is a response to our sin. It's a response to our sin. He gives some examples here in Micah. It's a response to our idols. It's a response to our idols. He says, all of her carved images shall be beaten into pieces. All her wages shall be burned with fire. All her idols laid to waste. He talks about the high places being brought low and the valleys being filled with judgment. The idea being those are the two places that, that idol worship was to, to be done most often. These individuals of the time, they, especially under King Ahaz, they had built carved images of, of beasts and things and they had placed them and they would worship them and they would sacrifice to them. And it wasn't just goats and birds that were sacrificed. The sacrifices to these idols, Ahaz as recorded as sacrificing his children. And we stand and we would say, well, we don't do that. We don't have idols. We don't have little wooden totems set up on the hills or in our houses. We don't sacrifice the blood of goats and animals to these things. But as we've said before, any idol is something that you have placed before Jesus Christ in your heart. It is your passion and desire that goes above and before him. Maybe it's your job. Maybe it's your pride, your comfort. Maybe it's your entertainment and your pleasure. Maybe it's your lust. And while we do not sacrifice animals at those things, we sacrifice our time, we sacrifice our resources. And, and dare I say, we sacrifice our families to those things. And we say to a world that is watching, this is more important than him. This is more important than Christ. We do so with our idols. We do so in our envy. 
Woe to those who devise, equal, devise wickedness and work on the evil on their beds. When the morning dawns, they perform it because it is in their power, is in the power of their hand. They covet fields and seize them and houses and take them away. They oppress a man and his house, a man and his inheritance. You go into two, and we, we're going to get into this some next week, but in two, chapter, uh, chapter two, verse nine, the women of my people, you drive out from their delightful houses, from their young children. You take away my splendor forever. Our idols, our, our envy, our jealousness of what others have and what others' blessings have, and we go and we try to have them for ourselves, even at the cost of others. Truly, when we boil it all down, it's, it's our hearts. It's our sinful hearts that he comes to judge. 1 Corinthians 6. Or do you not know that the unrighteousness will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither, sexual Im- nor, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Galatians 5. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Romans chapter 1, going back there, verse 28. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, deceit, strife, maliciousness, they are gossips, slanders, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless, though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. These lists are written that we may understand that this is us, not just them. You look at this list and you may say, well, I am not sexually immoral. You may look at this list and say, I'm not a murderer. I'm not an evil person. But are you a gossip? Are you a liar? Have you been disobedient to your parent, even as an adult? Are you a slanderer? Are you unforgiving? These lists are made to, for us to look in the mirror and say, that's me. That's me. And I deserve this. Romans 6.23 The wages of sin is death. Micah screams, Stop going that way. Micah records for us, though, the unfortunate response of many. He records for us the response of the rebel could say here that it's the response of the fool. The fool says, God would not judge me. 
Look here what it, what it says in chapter 2, verse 6. It says, do not preach, thus they preach. One should not preach of such things. Disgrace will not overtake us. The people of the time, they hear Micah's message and their response the response of even some of those that would call themselves religious leaders of the time is don't preach like that. Don't say those things. Don't speak of destruction. Don't speak of downfall. Don't speak of, of uh, the world basically ending. Don't talk like that. God would not do that to us. He would not do that to his creation. He would not do that to his people, Israel, he would not do that. He would not do that to our country and our citizens. He would not do that to me. I'm a good person. I do good things. Never mind that I... I don't follow him, I don't obey him, but I, I'm a good person. And yet what Scripture makes pretty clear is that just trying hard enough doesn't get you anywhere. When we look at these lists, they're all encompassing there's, there's something on there for everyone. And if you're like me, it's multiple things. There's multiple things in that list that I go, yeah, yeah, yeah. And if you've done one, then the consequence is the same as if you've done all of them. So we can't stand there and say, I'm good enough. Your good does not outweigh the evil that you've done. It does not outweigh your rejection of God. And he proves through Israel, through his own people, he will indeed judge. He will indeed come. The response of the rebel is, he would not judge me. It's that he is not coming. Has the Lord grown impatient, they say? Is he really going to come? Is he really, he really going to do it this time? Second Peter chapter 3. This is now the second letter that I write to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up in you a sincere mind by a way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles, knowing this first of all, that scoffers will come in the last day with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the, ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue to Continuing as they have from the beginning of creation, for they deliberately overlook this fact that the heavens existed long ago and that earth was formed out of water through water by the word of God, and that by means of these the world that then existed was deluged and with water and perished. Same word that 
the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. The rebel, the fool, says, he's not coming. It's been 2,000 years. He's not coming. We've seen wars and rumors of wars. We've seen earthquakes and droughts. He's not coming. Oh, friend, do not be mistaken. He is being patient for your sake. He is being patient for you. Desiring that none should perish. That, that none should stand before the judgment seat of God. He longs for you. But he will come. He will come. God would not judge me. God is not coming and God is not real. Proverbs says, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. We see it in Romans. We've already read that they exchange what they knew for a lie. And they became foolish in their hearts, thinking that they were the ones in control, that they were the ones that knew better. And God simply gave them up. It's a scary thing to think about. That God says, if that's what you want, then I will step away. The response of the rebel is to reject this news, to reject this warning and say, it does not matter. Or to say, I have time, when in reality we do not know. We could stop there. This morning, we could stop. And in some ways, as I, as I went through this week, I thought maybe it is good that we stop there. Because I don't think it's wrong for us to wrestle with the weight and the gravity of sin. For us to understand, even as believers, even if you've professed the name of Jesus Christ and that you have followed him, that your sin still needs repentance that your sin still needs to be eradicated. That you still need to remove idols from your heart. I don't think it's wrong for us to wrestle with that. I don't think it's wrong for us to, to feel the weight of that and to feel the weight of, of judgment and evil. I don't think that's wrong. But that's not where Micah leaves it. Turn with me to Micah chapter 5. And I am looking forward to two weeks from now when this is what I get to preach. Starting in verse 2. But you, O Bethlehem of Ephrath, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel whose coming forth is from old, from ancient of days. Therefore, he shall give them up until this time 
When she who is in labor has given birth, then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. He shall be their peace. Praise the Lord. The message of Micah is there is hope. That child in Bethlehem that is predicted in Micah is none other than Jesus Christ himself. He is the Savior who brings peace. Going back to Revelation, we just read those chilling words in 19 of his coming and his destruction of his enemies. And yet in 21, see the wonder of for those that believe in him. It says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard from a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. You see, the coming of the Lord is wonderful for the faithful. For the rebel, it is catastrophic, it is horrific, but for the, for the faithful, for the one in this life who has put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, who has repented of their sins and followed him, it is the end to conflict. It is peace. Peace with others, peace on earth, peace with ourselves, peace with God. It is the end to conflict. It is the end to suffering. And it is the end to grief. Oh, friend, there is hope. There is grace. There is mercy. So do you hear the warning? Jill reminded me of this passage this week, and it's actually in the back of your bulletin, 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 8. For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. For I see that that letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. These, these words of warning are not easy words. They're not words that, that any should delight in giving, other than that they bring life. It does not delight me to have us grieve over sin other than that I know that that grief produces repentance and that repentance produces life. And so we ask this morning, do you grieve over your sin? Believer, do you grieve over your sin? Knowing that God has, yes, paid the price, that his grace is abundant, 
But do you still see it in your life and think, oh, that, that I could rid myself of these things and then throw yourself on the grace of God and say, Jesus, make me more like you. Do you see passions in your life that are taking the place of Christ and do you grieve over that and do you desire to remove them? Do you grieve over your sin? Do you repent of your sin? I have met many and I have at times been that person who I grieved in the moment because I got caught and because there was a consequence. But I did not grieve in such a way that made me change my pattern. It only drove me to hide it more, to hide it better. Do you grieve over your sin and does that grief for producing repentance? Does it produce in you godly change? And then lastly, do you receive his grace? If we understand that we are all sinners, that we all deserve consequence, we all deserve his judgment, how great is it to know that that payment has been paid, that Jesus Christ lived a perfect life, deserving of no consequence himself so that he could die on the cross for you, so that he could pay your debt, so that he could take your place, so that one day your name would be written in the book of life, that you may know God's blessing instead of God's judgment. I'm going to ask the praise team to come back up and we're just going to have a time of response this morning. The word of God speaks to you today with warning. Stop going that direction. Maybe you have never had a relationship with Jesus Christ. Maybe you've been a good person, you've come to church a lot, but you have never actually followed him and made him first. You've just continued to live life the way you want to live it, to come up with your own morality, your own ethics, but never ceded to him. This morning, the word stands in your way and says, stop going this way. Put him first. Maybe you're a believer that there was a point in your life when you confessed him as Lord and Savior, you repented of your sin, you turned and you walked after him, and then somewhere in the way, you got distracted. Somewhere in the way, something happened, and you got diverted. And then you find yourself now, you're sitting here now, and you're like, yeah, he's not first anymore. I've lost my first love. I've lost my way again. It's not that you need saving again. It's just that you need to be brought back like a sheep who was lost, back into the fold. Today, would you confess? Would you repent and say, God, I want to follow you again? When God's people repent like that, when they are broken over their sin like that, then revival comes. Let's pray. Father, we come before you and call to repentance is heavy. And Lord, it is serious. It is deadly serious. And Lord, it is not easy it is not easy as for me as, as a pastor, as, but still a human who screws up 
to proclaim this, and it is certainly not easy to hear it as well. But Father, we know that we need it. Father, we need more of you, not less. We need you to be first, not second, not third. Lord, you are the one that gives life and life abundantly. You're the one that makes marriage better. You're the one that makes children a blessing. You're the one that makes jobs and occupations and hobbies fulfilling. You're the one that does all that, not the other way around. Father, I pray, Father, Lord, break us over our sin. Put in us a new heart. Give us fulfillment and contentment and joy and peace that this world cannot know. Father, I pray, do a work that only you can do. We pray this in the beautiful name of Jesus Christ. Amen.